Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ballistic Podcast, live from San Jose, California. I'm your co-host, Guru Ram Prakash, and along with me is my other co-host, Vikram Kant, and he's in Monterey, California. Vikram, how are you doing? Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. You know, uh, you know, being in California right now, especially in, in NorCal and SoCal, uh, it's pretty rough out here with all the fires and the smoke. Uh, I hope you and, and the family are safe. And uh, to all of our listeners here on the West Coast and Oregon and Washington as well, uh, I hope you guys are all safe. And uh, for those of you in California, uh, we feel your pain. I haven't really been able to go outside in a couple days, but, you know, our thoughts and prayers to all of you and uh, hopefully and to everybody else in, in throughout the United States and the world with, uh, with COVID-19. It's certainly a time with a lot of crises and a lot of difficult things that are that are making life difficult for all of us so we hope that this podcast can uh, bring you a little bit of levity in your life absolutely and it's not it's not just in california anymore as you said it's pretty much throughout the west coast uh, and again i we hope that you're you're safe and uh, and that you're in good health uh because you know the, the smoke does have side effects so you know stay stay inside stay healthy uh and yeah you, you know continue to um continue to support your families and uh wear a mask yeah, please wear a mask, stay socially distanced, do all the things that health departments are, are advising. Uh, we hope that everybody continues these positive behaviors so that we can we can beat these crises. All right, Vikram. So uh, it's, it's time to talk about the NBA playoffs. And uh, uh, last week, we uh, sort of continued talking about the, the second round. And uh, most of these series have either come to a close or you know, are going are going late into their series and, you know, starting up game seven. So uh, I wanted to talk about first talk about the game that happened earlier today. And for guys who are listening to this, listening to this pretty late uh, today is Sunday, September 13th. Uh, we wanted to talk about uh, the Denver Nuggets and the L.A. Clippers. So um, the Clippers have been looking to put away the Nuggets for the past couple of games, namely games five and game six. Uh, they went out to double digit leads in both of those games in in the second and in both of those leads uh took place in the second half so uh the clippers were you know looking looking to do their thing and were looking uh, forward to the, uh, the conference finals pro- probably too early in 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 their case uh because uh, the nuggets kept on fighting and uh in the nuggets in game five were able to come come back and and win uh, a game against the clippers a close game at that and then in game six, again, the Clippers went out to a double-digit lead in the second half, and the Nuggets were able to come back from, from that as well. So, like, really, really disturbing things if you're if you're the Clippers. I mean, allowing uh, a team like the Nuggets, a team that you're clearly better than, to come back from multiple double-digit deficits in the second half and, you know, take the lead and allow them to keep the lead as well and keep the momentum and, and for Nuggets, for a team that really has nothing to lose, it really shows that the Clippers have not been right since entering the bubble, really. And uh, I don't know if they have yet to find any chemistry. I, I don't know if, you know, have they ever found their chemistry this season? It, it's a fair question to ask. Uh, and uh, it's really rearing its ugly head, head. And as, you know, the Nuggets are a team that keeps fighting. They never quit. And, and you know, they are reaping the benefits of never quitting and uh, have won games five and six as a, as a result. And... Because of that, we are heading to a game seven, and this is a game seven, uh, um, um, sort of a 
um, situation that the Denver Nuggets are not stranger to. This is their fourth Game 7 in the last two years. So uh, they, they definitely have played in Game 7s in the past, and uh, they played in the Game 7 in the bubble in the previous round as well. So if you're the Clippers, you never want to be in this situation. So uh, tell me about well, like what the, what the Clippers are doing to give away these leads, or is it more about what the Nuggets are doing to, to come back in these games, Vikram? So with with all due respect to what the Nuggets are doing, this has I think this has less to do with the Nuggets, although there are some systemic things we should definitely talk about, and I, and I want to get into those in a little bit. But to put this in a to put this somewhat concisely, the give a shit factor for the Clippers is pretty low, and now they're in a game seven because they really haven't put forward the effort and gumption required to win games down the stretch after accumulating, like you know, like you noted, a double-digit lead in the first half. And I think that's really troubling because this team's supposed to be a championship team. And if you can't put together the mental fortitude to keep a lead in the second half against a much younger team, a team with inferior talent, and a team that just generally is not as good as you, then I'm not sure what you're doing in the playoffs right now at this level. No team that's left at this point is a bad team. And any of these teams can beat any other one of these teams on any given night, depending on the circumstance. That's the first thing. The Clippers can't just, you know, take their foot off the gas and hope to win these games. That's not how it works. For example, the Lakers have done a fantastic job, and we'll talk about that series too, of putting their foot on the throats of the Rockets and pressing hard. And because of that, they finished the series in five games. Contrast that to what's happening here with the Clippers, where their roster is better, top to bottom, flat out than what the Nuggets are doing. They just don't care as much as the Nuggets do right now. And so, you know, we can we can talk about all of the other things in this game, tactical matchups, offense, defense, but it really comes down to whether or not you care more than the other team. And right now, the Nuggets are working, are outworking the Clippers. They're hustling more. They're getting open looks for their teammates more. Their body language is better. Basically, every one of these intangible factors is way better for the Nuggets than the Clippers. Like, that's that's the biggest thing. And I know a lot of that sounds super wishy-washy, but these are the things that make championship teams champions. And the fact that the Clippers aren't doing those things is really troubling. Now, I mean, we, we could talk about how the Nuggets have really found something with Jokic. Of course, you know, that was – we talked about it last week and the week before. It's really tough for the Nuggets to – or it's really tough for the Clippers to defend Nikola Jokic. They don't really have anybody on the roster. And even with the development of Ibiza Zubats, it's, it's just really hard to see that as a, as a plus defensive matchup. And, you know, credit the Nuggets. They've shot much better in second halves. we got to give some props for uh, Game 5 Millsap bringing them back in the game. Uh, don't mess with a veteran is what that, is, is what that tells you. But, I mean, just generally, like, looking at what's happened in, in their wins, the Nuggets have leaned heavily on Jamal Murray. Uh, in their wins, he scored over 20 points on very efficient shooting. Like, tonight he scored uh, 21 points on 9 for 13 shooting. Like, if you're, if you're the Clippers and you're allowing the, the Nuggets to shoot 54% in the game and 48% from three, you know, that's, your defense is really, really struggling. And then on the other side, for you only to score 98 shooting 41% and 37 from three, you know, you're just not winning the numbers game. So I, this was really both for me an offensive and defensive failure for, uh, for the Clippers. And, the and, thing- and also an emotional failure, because did you see the looks on the Clippers faces in the fourth quarter? Like they look completely discombobulated. Like 
what is what 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 is going on, guys? And you know, Kawhi Leonard, he's not the emotional type, but this is one of those situations where you wish Kawhi Leonard was the emotional type, and he, wh- whether or not he has the uh, he has the uh, sort of um, leadership ability to tell the team, hey, or and tell the team mid-game, hey, what is going on here, guys? What what is happening? And you know, you just saw Kawhi Leonard by his stoic self on the bench, and you know that's the type of player he is. He leads by example, but that doesn't really help in these circumstances. And you know, I'm not going to go as far as to blame Kawhi for you know the Clippers struggles. He, I mean, he he has proven Kawhi has proven that he's a champion over over the years in his in, in his career. But he has not really proven that he is a leader of championship teams. Like, for example, in his years with the Spurs, it was really it was really led by Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Mono Ginobili, Greg Popovich. And he, he was a supporting player who happened to be uh, a superstar in terms of his basketball skill level, right? And then when he went to Toronto, the emotional leader was probably Kyle Lowry, who, you know, mm-hmm. had struggled in, in playoff runs in, in, in the past. But you could never question a guy like Kyle Lowry his, his effort, his, his overall will to win, right? And uh, Kawhi never had to tell Kyle Lowry to go play hard, right? He, he, he would go and play hard. And we will talk about that when we're talking about uh, the Raptors and, uh, and, uh, and Celtics, that, you know, it, it wasn't really Kyle Lowry's fault that they lost. He, he, play, he gave it his all and he, he played his heart out. But- and fouled <laughs> out. And that's kind of, <laughs> to me, that was the turning point. Right. And so we'll talk about that as well. But I think you're, you're spot on. The other thing I would say with the Clippers is, and this is in contrast with the Nuggets, is that they're not, I don't know how to put this uh, cleanly, but they're not really a team in my eyes as much. Like they're a bunch of good players that's kind of come together. It feels somewhat mercenary. Their pieces don't necessarily fit all, all that well, as well as you would think. And so... You know, I feel like that's a big part of it, whereas the Nuggets are like a homegrown team with draft assets uh, that have really grown together. This this Clippers team is really kind of mishmash, and they're winning on the basis of their talents. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's kind of the major difference between the two teams. And as we've noted before, the Clippers certainly have a higher degree of talent than the Nuggets do. Uh, so the fact that they're losing these games and they're losing them in the manner that they're losing them is is really, really troubling. I mean, systemically, I don't really know what more they can do. I will say, I think the big thing for the Clippers, the bellwether for them is really Marcus Morris. And if he plays poorly, it feels like the Clippers lose. And that's because you can kind of count on what you're getting from Kawhi. And Paul George has really showed up in this series, uh, unlike the last series where people were were questioning playoff P. Uh, Certainly he's shown up in this series. But I think for... Uh, for the Clippers, uh, Marcus Morris is a bellwether. Today, the fact that uh, Patrick Beverly fouled out, I think, was really critical as well. And only playing 17 minutes in this game uh, really, really hurt them, I think. So, uh, overall, I think those are, are really the big issues. The other thing is, the Nuggets have really started to do better contesting at the rim. And that's a that's a pretty... That's a big thing for them, given their struggles on defense. You see Jokic actually working down there and giving his all on defense. You see Michael Porter Jr. coming to help defense. And we know uh, his reputation defensively is rather poor. And uh, his comments after the Nuggets last loss about he needs to get the ball more and they need to spread the ball around more uh, might have been kind of confusing. And uh, <laughs> right. a little bit of a show of his, his arrogance as a player, but he certainly backed that up with the biggest shot 
uh, of game uh, of game five. So, I mean, you know, you look at that and you, you really have to say that this team, the, the Nuggets team is certainly overperforming their expectations. And the Clippers team is is very much underperforming what we expected from them to do. I thought they were going to close this series out rather quickly. Right. And, I mean, just going down the box score here for the Clippers in Game 6, uh, Marcus Moore Sr., five points. Uh, Patrick Beverly, he's not a scorer, but only two points. Landry Shamit, only only one point. Only I mean, he did not hit a three. Um, Montrez Harrell, five points. Like, these are totals that are just not going to cut it. Quite I mean, yeah. even bigger than that, look at the minutes totals. Like, Montrez only yeah. playing 15 minutes. Lou's only playing 24 because he's get he. In theory, he gets hunted. I was actually kind of confused as why the, as to why the Nuggets didn't hunt him more at the end of this game. Uh, but Jokic was on fire with some of these, like, Dirk fadeaways and three-point shots. Oh, my I God. I was actually – dude, I, I was, I was like, yelling at my TV, like, dude, just go inside, put a post-hook over Paul George. You have huge size. You don't need to take the Dirk fadeaway. But if it goes, it goes. And, you know, I'm not going to complain. Uh, and I really didn't think that they hunted Lou Will enough at the end of the game, and I was kind of surprised about that. On the other side, I had no idea what the Clippers' crunch time offense was supposed to be. I didn't feel like they were really running anything uh, useful that was generating great looks. I mean, granted, there were a lot of misses for them as well, and you know, part of this is a make-or-miss league, and certainly their offense looked more cohesive in the first half, and sometimes it really is that simple, but now... Uh, you're in a situation, if you're the Clippers, of having to play a game seven and anything can happen in one game. Yep, anything can, anything can happen in one game. And for, and, and given the, the experience that the Nuggets have in game sevens, uh, I mean, I would not put it past them to, to win this game. I would not put it past them at all. And, and, and you know, the, given the way that they played in this in the series or over the past couple of games, at least, they have every reason to be confident going going into a game seven. And if you're a team like the Nuggets, you're clearly the inferior team. You have nothing to lose. What um, I mean, what more could you ask for in, in, in this type of situation? Nothing at all. And the other thing is, I think the Nuggets respond to adversity a hell of a lot better than how the Clippers respond. And like, that's kind of, that's really what it is, is they respond better to adversity. They respond better to being put in a, between a rock and a hard place. And it's that simple. And so I think that, like I said, this is really, this is really a failure for the Clippers. Like, I don't think that there's any better way to put it. And I, I think it's just kind of sad where we are with the Clippers. Like I thought that they were going to like last week, I thought they would clean up the series at three, one. And now the Nuggets have made this a series. And honestly, I think it's a coin flip for the next game. Like, what comes to your mind when you, when you look at the Clippers personnel, right? Hard-nosed, defensive-minded. We take no shit from n- nobody, right? In the, in the words of, of Patrick Beverly, right? And, uh, and, and you know, we, we get the job done at the end of the day. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly disappointed in the Clippers because this is not the Clippers team we saw last year go up against the Warriors, and what, what this shows me is that there's a change in mentality here. There's a very, very, very basic change in mentality. And I know this is not basketball related, but the, the thing about the Clippers is, is that they act like champions before they're champions. Absolutely. I think that's what it is. And like I said, I, I really wonder about some of the team concepts about it. And even, you know, even the best super team you can think of, right, the – the Miami Heat still lost their first NBA Finals. And 
it kind of feels like that right now for me is like they're just getting outplayed, outworked, and outteamed by uh, by what the Nuggets are doing right now. And so I think that's kind of like my my biggest thing for this team is you're really gonna have to you're gonna have to put on a performance in Game Seven if you want to beat these Nuggets. They're not going down without a fight. And you know, again, if the Clippers really lock in, I don't doubt that they're gonna win the game. But you know, like we said, Game Seven, anything can happen, bro. Anything, and it's so exciting because of that. Right, and and, and like you just said, right, the, the Nuggets are the Nuggets are going to go down swinging, and it, it, it's up to you to make sure they 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 swing and they miss, right, and that and that is based on your defensive effort and your ex, uh, offensive execution, and you know, uh, in the, for the Clippers in their in their first halves of the last couple of games. They have more or less been been doing that. I think it's just in the second half, and then the wheels just come off. It's sort of inexplicable. So, but but it, yeah. In this last game, there was a possession where the the Nuggets they didn't end up scoring on this possession, but they had like four or five offensive rebounds in one sequence, and like that's the type of effort you need to win games. If you're not doing that, you're not going to win. And this is in this is in the fourth quarter of a close game. You have to muster the mental strength to play for 48 minutes, and and so far they really haven't. And like that's kind of what I think overall. Like this series is really is is coming down to that. It's coming down to who's mentally tougher, who's mentally stronger, and you know who's gonna who's gonna put it all on the line. And so far, it's really been the Nuggets and not the Clippers, and it's disappointing. Like now, I can't even tell you whether we might end up having a a Lakers Nuggets series, which is insane. It would be insane for the Lakers. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that they, they, they would very, very much uh, like to see the Nuggets in the in the next round if they had if they had their say. I, I would tell I would tell you that much. But uh, yeah, you, you you talk about offensive rebounding, right? Offensive rebounding is all about effort. I, I look down the Clippers roster. Patrick Beverly, what is he known for? Being an effort player. Montres Harrell, what what is he known for? Being being an effort player through all all their flaws, right? And like Kawhi Leonard is a I mean, he doesn't come across as a as an effort player, but he de- definitely go, goes out there and tries. But uh, but if for some reason it's 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 just not it's not coming not coming together. And I I think uh, I think it's a mentality issue. I also think it, it might be just like hey we can we can beat these guys playing ten minutes in the fourth quarter type of thing. And you know they they're letting games get away from them. So I mean, with that we've already spent like fifteen minutes talking about the Clippers and what they're not doing and you know we, we look forward to watching game seven it should be it should be fun uh and uh yeah we always love games i hope it's a rock so, me too me too and, and and with that uh we move on to uh the next series that we want to talk about and we're going to be switching conferences right here we're going to be talking about um, the the celtics and raptors series that just came to a close so that series also went seven games uh but it, obviously, it was it was very it, it was very different from the um, Clippers and Nuggets series in in the sense that there there was no clear cut better better team here. Uh, I'm and, not sure um, I necessarily agree with that. Actually, I actually do think the Celtics were just overall a better team, and the Raptors just well, okay, okay, themselves okay. Well, to, to they, they played better. They 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 they, they played better. I'll, I'll I'll give you I'll, I'll give you I'll give you that much, but. Well, going into the series, we we picked Toronto. We right? did. In seven. We did pick Toronto in seven. We did. But one thing that the series taught me, Vikram, 
it, is that so? How did the how did the Raptors get here? Right? How did the Raptors get to the two seed? They they got here because they had amazing depth on on, on their team. Right? They can go 10, 10, 11 deep pretty easily obviously they developed some of that depth okay i'm talking about guys like you know terrence davis maybe like matt thomas chris boucher um yeah chris boucher uh norman powell joining the rotation right but like what i really learned about about the playoffs is that in, in the playoffs it's it's really my top eight guys against your top eight guys right and if you look at the top seven or eight guys for the celtics and the top seven or eight guys and the top seven, eight, all right, guys, for, for the Raptors, it, it is actually very debatable as to who, who has the better top seven or eight best players. And, and, and you know, like uh, when, when push comes to shove, who is able to score one-on-one more easily? Who is able to close out fourth quarters more easily? And uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the day, it, it was the Celtics, but the, the Raptors did put up a really, really good fight in game six when, you know, uh, the wheels started to come off. They, uh, they, they sort of pulled victory out of the hands of defeat in game six and, and won that game. And then uh, they went, went to a game seven. Technically, uh, every, every team won their road game, quote-unquote road game in the series. Um, and, and it obviously went to, went to seven games. But yeah, uh, in game seven, obviously in the last minute, Kyle Lowry fouled out. And when, when, when that sort of happened, uh, that, that sort of gave Boston the, the window to win the game. And they, and they took that window like all good teams do. Um, Jason Tatum is just blossoming to our, to, into a superstar before our very eyes. Uh, Marcus Smart is the ultimate playoff defender, ultimate playoff effort player. You want to see effort in the playoffs? That That is Marcus Watch Smart. Him. He is yeah. not getting traded this offseason. Yeah, for all those Warriors fans like, oh, Marcus Smart fits in the trade exception. Great. Nope. I don't really care if he fits in the trade exception. He's uh, definitely not getting traded. Exactly. He's just way, way too valuable in, in, in the playoff atmosphere. Daniel Tice chimed in and, and gave very, very, very productive minutes for, for, for the Celtics in the series. And, and you know, uh, I, they are moving on to face the Heat. So, first of all, let's, uh, let's start up talking about the Celtics and the Raptors. Uh, do a little bit of a post-mortem on the Raptors as well. But uh, what did you see out of the series from the Celtics that will, um, that, that will benefit them come the conference finals? I mean, you know, we'll talk about, we'll probably have an episode that talks about, you know, retrospectives on what the next, or retrospectives on, on obviously on uh, like the postmortems, but also uh, series previews for the next series as well. But uh, I think the Celtics are probably favored against the Heat if I had to one or the other, I would, you know, go like Celtics and seven at this moment. I, I, I go Celtics with seven with, with a lot of trepidation. And a lot of <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm with yeah, you yeah, on that. Uh, but I think what you, I actually, once again, think that this is about what the Raptors couldn't do and what they really couldn't do is put a cohesive offense together. And that's kind of like, again, their victories, they had to pull out <laughs> their victories were so were like by the skin of their teeth. Like obviously with the OG Ananobi game three, you know, buzzer beater, incredible shot. That was one, but like just in general, their wins were very, very narrow. And the Celtics wins were, were pretty uh were there I wouldn't call them dominant, but they were certainly much at a much greater they're comfortable wins. They were decisive. Yeah, decisive, they were comfortable, however you wanna phrase it. But they were much better wins than what the, the Raptors are, were doing. And granted a win is a win is a win. But ultimately, I thought that for the Raptors, 
their inability to get production from Pascal Siakam was probably the biggest issue uh, with them in the series. And I think we're going to make this point too with, with the Bucks because I think Pascal Siakam and Giannis are, are similar players in a sense because their production is so much on the inside. And if you can take that inside production away and you don't have to worry too much about their jump shots, and this is particularly true in, in the case of Pascal Siakam, who could not hit a three, not just throughout the series, but in the bubble, uh, you can severely cramp uh, the Toronto offense. And that's what I kind of felt like, is that they really struggled because they were unable to get good production from Pascal Siakam. And I know that Nick Nurse was, was thinking, you know, eventually he's got to shoot. He's got to give me a game where he gets like 30 points. And he just never did. And so I think that this is really is really a series that says Pascal Siakam has to develop more as a, as a player and develop some other counters uh, besides just the spin move, because you know what? That's, that's already like, we know that he wants to spin. We know what his counter to taking away his drive is. He wants to go to that spin move. He's got to be better in the post. He's got to, he's got to hunt mismatches more effectively. Like he, there were a few times where he posted up Marcus smart. That's really not a plus advantage for him. Uh, as soon as he was posting up Jalen Brown, who defended him well, but he was more productive in that matchup, they would send a double, and he wasn't really able to do anything with that. So, I mean, he's got to develop some other techniques, some other counters, and so I think these are all of the things that he needs to work on as an individual player, and if he does, I think this matchup will be better. Uh, as you were talking about Jason Tatum for the, for the Celtics, this was not his best series, but I felt like what he was able to do was really take a defender away from uh, from the Raptors. And he was effective when he was open from three, as opposed to Pascal Siakam. And it was, it was just a really interesting coaching matchup to me because I felt like both the Celtics and the Raptors would, from time to time, make really strange ISO decisions, particularly at the end of games. Uh, like, there were times where Kemba was isolating its OG in, like, game six in the fourth quarter, which didn't really make any sense to me. So stuff like that. Uh, but ultimately, going back to the Raptors, this comes down to Pascal Siakam has to give you more if he's going to be your superstar building block. And having seen this series, I don't think he can be. I think he his, his ceiling is going to be the second best player on a championship team as he is currently playing. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think that's like my overall take. So, 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 who can be the second best champion player on a championship Pascal Siakam. team? Pascal, I, I mean, like, he, so who would you say is the second best player on the Raptors right now? Uh, in this series, it was probably Van Vliet. Maybe. <laughs> okay, in, in this series, it's probably Van Vliet, but it, just like overall, general, uh, from a general perspective, going into the series, who did you think the second best player? Kyle was? Lowry. It was probably. I, I would have, I would have said Pascal Siakam is the best player overall, but well, and 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 that and that that raises the issue, right? Because last last year when the Raptors went all the way to the finals and they won, right? The, uh, it was very very clear that Pascal Siakam was the was the second or third best player, right? And and that's why he was able to get favorable matchups. That's why he was always able to go back to that spin move. That's why he was always sing, uh, he was always in single coverage, right? Because he he. he he, because he was able to get those opportunities last year, but I mean, I mean, this year in the playoffs, like one thing that like Pascal Siakam, I'm sure he he learned it was that like if when you're a vocal point of an offense in a playoff run and you're going up against a great coach like Brad Brad Stevens, right? You are going to 
have struggles and it's up to you to be able to adjust from those struggles. And basically, like you said, they turned Pascal Siakam into a three-point shooter. And that's just not his game. Like it, just a standstill three-point shooter. And you can, you can see Pascal Siakam get, get, uh, get frustrated out there. He, 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 was, he was just bombing threes at, at some point. And, uh, and I mean, like just watching, watching him shoot threes and hit off the front rim, like you, you knew that he was playing right into Boston Celtics. Absolutely. So Jalen like, Brown was literally like, shoot a three whenever the heck you want, dude. We're leaving you wide open. He went like one for 13 in a game. Like, come on now. Yeah. You know, this is, you right, can't exactly. do that and expect to win. And I wish it was more complicated than that, but like, that's really what it comes down to is you have to be able to be productive from three point range. If you're not able to get something on the inside, or you need to be productive from the mid range in some way, shape or form. And again, this is going, what we'll talk about it again with the honest, with, with the honest, but like the absolute inability to score when your first and second options are taken away means you are not suited for playoff basketball. And that's the difference between an 82 game player and a 16 game player, ultimately for offense. Right. Whether how many minutes did Terrence Davis play in this like series? Zero. <laughs> how many minutes did Matt Thomas play in this like series? Five? He actually hit a three. Yeah. I actually thought Matt Thomas. He actually, he actually hit a three. But it was it was it was five it was five unmeaningful minutes, right? The, the, the Raptors were already already down, I think like twenty plus or something like that. This was this happened in game five, I want to say, right? That's when Matt Thomas came in the game. Like I, I guess Nick Nurse was just trying something new. At, at that point in, in the I game, I actually thought that worked but, out. And, 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 right, and and that's what that's what I was talking about, right? The Raptors showed that they can go 10, 11 deep in, in the in the regular season, but that doesn't always work out in your favor come playoff time. You know, some of the players that are playable in the regular season are just not playable come playoff time. And at the end of the day, it comes to who are my top seven or eight guys, and who are your top seven or eight guys, and you know, if you're depending on guys uh, like at the bottom of the totem pole to uh to produce for you and you know they're not playable in a playoff series that poses a problem and that was precisely the problem i think with the, with the raptors in 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 the series that's why they were so successful in the regular season so successful in the bubble i, I believe they went undefeated in the bubble up until the uh up up until the celtic series if i'm not mistaken right and you know we were heralding them as like championship favorites and, and rightfully so i mean they they deserve to be in that conversation no doubt about it but at the end of the day, when push comes to stuff, superstars and, you know, uh, and, and general, you know, a ability to uh, like play, play your top guys in the biggest moments, that counts. Yeah. And, and, and it, yeah. I think that there's a – Danny LaRue has a really nice concept with this called undeniability. I'm not sure if he coined it, but he, he certainly uses this concept a lot. And I think it's very, very valid. And it's just the idea that if your main player isn't undeniable offensively, you're really in, in kind of in trouble. And that's the kind of thing where Pascal Siakam and uh, as well as like Giannis are not undeniable players because of their limitations on offense uh, beyond the rim, especially if they're unable to hit those shot, hit like three point shots. Right. And not having those aspects in a seven game series can make it really, really difficult for a team's offense to succeed. And I mean, of course the Celtics played great defense and the Raptors also played phenomenal defense as well. But at the end of the day, the Celtics simply had more weapons offensively than the Raptors did. And that's basically it. And I, I for the Raptors moving forward, I'm not sure they're going to keep Fred VanVleet. I think he's going to get paid somewhere else. And I'm not sure what their team looks like moving forward because next year, Kyle Lowry is going to be a year older. 
Pascal Siakam, if he doesn't take a step forward, is is going to be limited, and they're not going to have Fred VanVleet. So uh, I'm I'm interested to see what happens for them, you know, in the future. Right, and you know, Fred Van Fred Fred Van Vliet has been. I mean, it's been rumored uh, in you know a lot of circles that he is indeed going to be paid next year. And you know, uh, the the Raptors right now really don't have the money to pay for him. I, I don't I, I don't think so. At least uh, maybe Vikram, you can go back look at the cap sheet for the Raptors and make that determination. Uh, but um, it, it's it's very interesting to see where the Raptors go forward from here. Obviously, they had a lot of success with the. Lowry Van Vliet backcourt lineup, but you, but you know, uh, the Celtics were able to uh, tear that apart a little bit and get the switches they wanted and uh, have, have uh, Fred Van Vliet guard, guard a wing like Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. And, you know, the, the, they, t- they took advantage of those matchups. So, like, and um, yeah, so just moving forward and, and looking at the Celtics going up against the Heat, obviously with, with, the, with the Heat, they play a pretty wing-heavy lineup and uh, that lineup should be you know, good enough to uh, de- defend guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, you know, the wing-heavy lineups that the, that the Celtics like to employ. Uh, but the reason why I have the Celtics in seven is because I think the series is going to be very close. And uh, I think the, the, the late-game execution of uh, Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum is just a little bit better than the late-game execution of, uh, of a Jimmy Butler, I would say. And I, I trust that more late in games than... Uh, uh, I trust them more rather late in games than, than Jimmy Butler. That's that's why I got uh, the Celtics in seven. But I will not be surprised if uh, like Eric Spolstra like pulls a bunny out of a hat and says, "Ah, girl, look, you're fool, you absolute fool. Look at you. Yeah, I, I, you we believe the Celtics had a chance in this series. Now look what I got. So um, you know, yeah, it'll be interesting. I think the coaching method is going to be. I so this playoffs for me has really. Uh, really, really elucidated the value of good coaching for me in a way that I don't think I had appreciated as much as I I did in this instance, because we've been spoiled uh, in the last few years with like the overwhelming talent of the Warriors, where like Steve Kerr is a great coach, but like tactically, he's never really been challenged in this way. And so our last few years, and, and the same thing with some of LeBron's coaches with like Lou and Blatt as well, like they haven't really been, you know, necessarily tactically challenged in the same way that Nick Nurse and Brad Stevens were in this round, or the tactical failures you saw with with Coach Bud against the Heat, and just like the dominance in in coaching and how much that matters uh, to winning games and series. So like this this playoffs has been very illustrative of the importance of having a top tier coach for a particular type of team or a particular talent level of team. So that's I think that's the first broad point that I would make. The second thing is in a in a Heat Celtic series, I'm not quite sure where the Heat go to defend Kemba Walker, and I think that's a very that's good point. That's going to be like I'm not sure that you want to put Jimmy Butler on him. I don't think Jimmy Butler is necessarily quick enough or wants to guard him like that. And you have your hands full with Tatum and Brown with that. I don't think. Andre Iguodala is a great matchup for a super speedy guard at his age at this point. Uh, so, and I'm, so I'm just kind of curious about what the Celtic or what the, the Heat do with Kemba Walker on a possession to possession basis. Uh, I don't think I do think Bam is a good matchup against Miami. I don't think anybody really takes him away. But again, he's not like offensively undeniable uh, in the way like a, a Shaq would be. 
So I, I don't think that that's necessarily like you can get away with playing Tice in this in this series and not have any problems. Similar to in the Raptors series, no center was really going to take advantage of Daniel Tice. Unlike if you know the Celtics played Anthony Davis, he wouldn't necessarily be able to guard him. So I think. But 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 if I can just interrupt for just one sure. thing, one thing Bam can t- one thing Bam can take away from the from the Celtics offense is that Tice law. That that um, that the Celtics were using a lot against the Raptors when when Tatum or or um, or Kemba Walker was able to get past their man, you know they would get the they would get the big to commit, and uh, they were very very good in converting uh, those pa- pocket passes and lobs to Tice. So, I, I I think Bam could do a better job in defending. I think that. just straight up the uh, the Miami Heat is a more athletic team than the Raptors are. And so I think right. that's going that is going to be hugely important. I don't think there's gonna be And and they're bigger. Yeah, and they and they have more wing defenders. Although there's not gonna be in like I don't think any defender on the on the Heat is as good as OG Ananobi is in isolation. So like uh from that perspective. But I think they have more options, right? With Jay Crowder and with uh with Iggy, with Jimmy Butler. They've got a lot of wing options. I'm just going to be – I'm actually very interested to see how, you know, players like Duncan Robinson does and Tyler Hero, what they can do in this series. Because I don't necessarily think the Celtics are, are going to be really great about defending them either. So, like, this is tactically a super interesting series for me, similar to the, the Raptors-Celtics series. So, you know, I think this is going to be another rock fight, and I'm really looking forward to this series. Who do you think Marcus Smart defends? Jimmy Butler? So that's the he's the one real perimeter defender like that for me that I think is is going to be interesting. I, you know, I think he's going to have. I think he's going to be on one of the Miami guards. If I were if I were Spolster or if I was uh, Brad Stevens, I would really consider putting him on like Drogic because Rogic. because Drogic a has been playing lights out in in the uh, in the bubble, but more importantly, he's such a catalyst for that offense. So if they can take Dragic out of the game, I think they can really take the heat out of their offense. And so I think Marcus Smart would be, you know, well used in that situation. And I think that they're going to, like I said, or Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero, any of these perimeter creators, or not even creators, but like play, play creators, play finisher aspects, I think that he would be well suited on any of those. Though I think with the versatility of Tatum and Brown as well, like I think that's going to be, I think that they're going to have enough perimeter defenders, but Marcus Smart, I think, would be best on Dragic overall. Uh, I would tend to agree with that. I think you, I think you start him off on on, on Dragic and just just see, uh, just see who gets who gets hot on the Heat because, as I said, Dragic is the only one on the Heat that, that is really really scored on demand. For when they needed the bucket, they went to Goran Dragic, and he's he's been converting so far. Good for good for him, as we as we have stated before. He's sort of going back to his Phoenix well, days. With how he's playing right now, he's he's been playing amazing. If I can make uh, one uh, point here, I think the reason this sure. is happening is is because he takes away what the Bucks give you from a schematic perspective, which is an off the dribble, uh, off the dribble three behind a screen. And so the Bucks system, and this is part of what Coach Bud didn't do, is like it didn't he didn't adjust to this. They give up that shot, and Dragic is actually good at making that shot. I don't think the Celtics are going to be doing that. I think Marcus Smart is going to fight over a screen. I think that this is going to be very difficult for – I think this is not going to be a great series for him. I think he's going to be defended much, much more effectively than uh, than what he was in, in the Bucks series. So I think it's going to be an absolute rock fight. It's going to be a lot of fun, but it may not be the best basketball to watch, even though I would say that game six of the series was probably one of the best games I've seen 
uh, over the last five or six years and is on, like was on par for me with that uh, game six Warriors Thunder series or Warriors Thunders um, series. So I was I was I had a lot of fun with the series, actually, more than I had expected. Yeah, same here with with regards to the with regards to Celtics and Raptors. Uh, yeah, this is uh, but uh, the Celtics and Heat it has the potential to get very very emotional as well. And, and we, I mean, we we got flaring emotions, but both Marcus Smart and and Jimmy Butler would not be surprised to see uh, I, the, both of those going at it, especially if it's a close game and a close series. You know, yeah, the, uh, the, those two are just going to leave it all on the floor. Uh, even Marcus Smart's move would, would probably flop. A couple of times to get calls. I mean, we saw both Kyle Lowry and him do it over the course of the series. But hey, uh, that—that's the whatever NBA. it takes, that's, man. That's whatever it takes. Yeah, whatever it takes. And uh, you know, it's a—it's a—it's a brand new game, as they say. So, uh, yeah. Uh, with that, uh, I just uh, wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, the the Lakers and the Rockets. But uh, I mean, is it really, really worth talking about? Because apart from Game One. Uh, the Lakers just whitewashed them, quite frankly. The, the Rockets really, really, really never had a chance. And to to compound matters, you know, da- the situation with with Daniel House letting um, uh, letting someone who was not supposed to be in his room inside of his room, and again, that entire investigation sort of was a huge distraction in games three and four. And then they finally went ahead and kicked Daniel House out of the bubble. And he, uh, like, just a side note, he's a guy with a family and. His wife apparently deleted all Instagram pictures uh, involving those uh, those two. So you know, it's it it got it got very ugly very very fast for him. And this is after Mike D'Antoni called Daniel House, you know, a, a a future star in this league. And you know, coaches sometimes come up with like the worst hyperbole you can ever imagine. But um, but it was nice to see Daniel House go go from a G League guy to at least you know a consistent uh, rotation player. Uh, but, you know, uh, at the end of the day, the Rockets got major, major problems with their roster, major, major problems with their cap sheet, which, you know, uh, doesn't help you fix the problems on your roster, which basically means that they're stuck. So uh, uh, with that, uh, Mike D'Antoni uh, seems to be knowing about all of that. And that is why he's already told the Rockets that he is not coming back next year. So uh, with that, uh, with that, Vikram, give me your general thoughts on on the on the series. Uh, if you want to give a Rockets postmortem, you know, feel free. Go ahead, um, and yeah, the floor is yours. So I, it's like kind of disappointing. I, I expected a little bit more out of the Rockets, to be honest. Uh, ultimately, for me, this series, I'm worried about the Rockets like long term because I just don't think that they can win with uh, James Harden and Russell Westbrook particularly with Russell Westbrook, because uh, basically what the Lakers did was they identified we can let Russell Westbrook do what he wants, and they put Anthony Davis on him, and he was of mixed efficiency. They would just let him get to his spot and do what he wanted, and he was not able to punish them for that. So, like, overall, his inability – like, who he is now is not who he was in, like, 2013, 2014. It's not even who he was when he won the MVP. And that downgrade is super significant because he's not able to punish teams uh, for leaving him wide open. And at this point of his career, he's going to have to do it, going to have to do his base, best Jason Kidd impression and learn how to shoot threes. Because if he doesn't do that, 
his his effectiveness as a player is going to be severely limited. And I think it comes down like there's not much more to say about the series besides the fact that the Lakers identified who to leave open, how to make their rotations, and do that. On offense, the Lakers were just more talented. Uh, they had an identity, and they were able to cash out on that. And they got a lot of great production from their uh, from their role players. But like, let me put it this way. It's pretty sad if you're the Rockets and you realize that the Lakers are playing Taylor Horton Tucker like minutes in the second, like in real playoff minutes. And he's like actually producing against you. Like if you can't even take that guy away, what exactly are you doing? So I, I just think that the Rockets didn't really stand a chance in this series at all. And like actually this, as much as I'm, uh, as I like the Lakers, this was not a great series to watch at all. So overall... It was a, a very poor showing for uh, for the Rockets, and like from a post mortem perspective, I don't really know how they're going to manage their cap because the contracts that uh, Russell Westbrook and James Harden are on are, make it really difficult, uh, and Aaron Gordon as well. And with those three players on your books, it's hard to fill up fill around them. And I don't know how much longer the, this small ball tactic can continue for them. I think it's going to be fine in the regular season because they're going to shoot so much better, and most teams. Uh, don't have the personnel to take that tactic away, but I don't know, man. I, I just don't see what the what the Rockets can do to get better at this point. I think this is kind of their cap, and I, I would I hope I'm wrong about that, but I don't think I am. I I don't I don't think you're wrong about that either. They they look like a, they they look like a team that will perform the regular season, make the playoffs. And then lose in the playoffs. That's uh, that's that's really really what what looks what what it looks like right now. And it's very very interesting because you know they they traded they traded Chris Paul to get uh, Russell Westbrook, who had an extra year on his contract, and they also gave up draft picks and draft pick swaps, right? So uh, and OKC managed to increase Chris Paul's value during this time, right? And and now Chris Paul has actual suitors like the Milwaukee Bucks and the Philadelphia 76ers. Like, and we, I mean, we can talk about it in a later episode whether those those suitors make sense. But you know, it just goes to show like the mismanagement of the cap, mismanagement of your assets. Now, really, the only assets you really have in your team are is an aging PJ Tucker and Robert Robert Covington. And e- even if you attach those players to uh, the salary of a Russell Westbrook, or you know, the salary of a Eric Gordon does it really make it worthwhile to for a team to do it do a trade like that? It 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 really isn't. It really really isn't. Especially given the number of years left on on Russell Westbrook's contract, it's 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 just it's just crazy. Like looking at uh, the Houston Rockets cap sheet, I'm just looking at it right now. Uh, like James Harden, forty one million. Russell Westbrook, forty one million. He and, goes out to twenty two, twenty three, doesn't he? Say that again. His contract goes out to twenty two, twenty three, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what team wants to take an, an aging Russ at this point of his career. So, I mean, I I don't know. I don't think that the Rockets have a particularly positive direction to go in. And so, if I was the front office, and I know Daryl Morey has done an absolutely phenomenal job, I just don't see what the direction is for you to actually uh, progress and proceed. So. I don't know. I think that they don't have any any real options in, in remaking the roster. I think they're stuck with where they are. And I think that they're not going to be able to advance past this point because they're always going to face another kind of juggernauty team in this way that can take away. Like, Russ's weaknesses are always going to be his weaknesses. So, so 
Daryl Morey, right? Now, now, that, now that we're talking about Daryl Morey, he, he's done a, a tremendous job in putting cheap pieces around, uh, around James Harden, right? And by, by cheap pieces, I'm, obviously I'm talking about guys like Daniel House, uh, guys, guys like Austin Rivers, guys like P.J. Tucker, like, and making them, making them effective in, in the Houston Rockets system. However, uh, that effectiveness is only uh, only valid in the in the regular season, right? Because like when you come to the playoff time, uh, again, it it comes down to who are my top seven or eight guys and who are your top seven or eight guys, right? And can and can you match up with 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 us? And for by and large, the answer from the Houston Rocket side is that no, we we can't. And why is because you know we we got all these players like off the scrap heap that would be developed into you know. Uh, like rotation pieces, but those rotation pieces are still playing come playoff time. And, you know, uh, like they, they have clear and defined weaknesses. So uh, like, uh, again, I don't know. I do not know how, how else Daryl Morey could have built the team. Like maybe don't trade Chris Paul, but uh, I, I understand like maybe Daryl Morey was caught between the rock and a hard place there because uh, maybe Chris Paul and James Harden had a deteriorating relationship. Sure. And I, I'm uh, certainly sensitive yeah. to that. Uh, but ultimately, Chris Paul would have been better for this team than James Harden. Or, sorry, than, uh, than Russell Westbrook was. Than Russell series. Westbrook. And I completely agree. They, they achieved much better, much better results with Chris Paul than, than with, with Russell Westbrook. And, you know, uh, and then Russell Westbrook ended, ended his, like, you know, playoff run in this typical way, like shout, shouting at the crowd, shouting at fans. Uh, screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> it, 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 it was interesting because I just want to say this one thing about Russ, right? Like, he obviously shows a, shows a lot of emotion on the court to opposing players, to, to the fans, and it's it's in his right to, to do that, right? I, I do not mind a, an emotional player, and I definitely don't mind an emotional player like Russell Westbrook. Uh, and I do believe that Ray, Rajon Rondo's brother, I think his name is William Rondo or something like that, he uh, he should should have been kicked out for you know yeah for, for having some verbal altercation like for, for having some sort of conversation like right? why but and so certainly we don't want to that's not appropriate from uh, from Rajon Rondo's brother either but at the same time you have to be more under control if you're Russell Westbrook like just in general yes, exactly he 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 seems to be one of the only guys that gets pulled into these things right and it, 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 it it's almost like he invites the confrontation. He he invites. Well, uh, he always plays with the chip on his shoulder. Whatever it takes to get that uh, that feeling, right? Right, I guess so. And you know, I think that's exactly what happened in this case. And it's sort of problematic. Is there a point where the chip becomes so big it becomes a distraction? Yes, because he's also not willing to put the work in to to take away. Like what he needs to do is develop a a reliable three point jump shot a la Jason Kidd. He needs to watch more film. He needs to do all the little things that aging superstars have to do to maintain their advantage. He has to change his game. If he doesn't, he's not going... Like, you can already see it. He can't make the same plays that he used to. There was a play in this past game, or in uh, in game four, where he, he blew by Anthony Davis and, like, blew a layup. Like, Russ two years ago was not missing that shot, but, like, now he's not as athletic. So he has to change his game such that he could be productive and, and maintain the level of productivity that he's shown. And if he can't do that, then he's basically going to fail his team over and over and over again in the playoffs. I agree with you 100%. I mean, could, 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 Russell, uh, could the Russell Westbrook of two years ago work better with James Harden? 
you think? Well, I mean, yes, because you wouldn't be missing like you you can't leave him as open as you are now. Like what what these guys are doing at the moment would not really suffice. So because like they're leaving him wide open in a way where like if he was a more powerful finisher at this point, uh, he would be able to take advantage of it. So. Yeah, and I, I I completely agree with you. You you could tell that he not only he has lost his lost a step, but James Harden has also lost several steps. And uh, you know the fact that he gained a lot of weight coming into the bubble did not help him at all. Certainly. Yeah, and that is that that's just a discipline, uh, like and, and get being ready to a sort of thing that you know James Harden sometimes seems to lose sight of. At certain points in in his career, and you know, unfortunately, that might be what he what his career is defined by, more or less. But um, but but yeah, the the Rockets they're they're not getting Mike D'Antoni back next year. Uh, it'd be interesting to see where he goes, uh, because he seems to uh, he seems to be he's seemingly acting like a guy who has options. So I mean, uh, <laughs> I think he has lots of options, honestly. Like. And we'll talk about the coaching carousel in a later episode, but, like, can you imagine the Indiana Pacers with Mike D'Antoni, like a team that really needs to rethink their offense? And, frankly, yes. just let Miles Turner bomb more threes. Like, can you imagine that offense with Mike D'Antoni? I mean, I, I just think that he's a good fit for a lot of other teams right now. And so, you know, overall, I think that's why – I think that's why he, he's willing to leave. Because they're, uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I mean, Indiana is definitely a very, very interesting fit. Now, now that you say it, I would just tell Mike D'Antoni, don't go to Philly. Yeah, I don't think that that's a good match for his, uh, for his talent yeah. or his offensive like mindset. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really think Philly is the team that he should be going to. I mean, we did see what he looked like in LA with another kind of dominant two-way center uh, with Dwight Howard, and, and that that experiment didn't really go all that well. Exactly. So I'm not sure that that's the uh, direction I would go in if I was. Uh, if I was and, and Ben Simmons and Ben Simmons being a non-shooter would just kill Mike D'Antoni inside. And, 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 anyways, <laughs> obviously some very very interesting stuff. And you know well, there are a lot of head coaching vacancies, so we're going to we're going to definitely talk uh, about that in a future episode. No no doubt about it. But yeah, well with with this, like uh, we would like to close out this episode and. Um, again, uh, with the Ballistic Podcast, we are on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Uh, this is the first podcast that we're recording on uh, on behalf of Anchor, and Anchor is uh, going to be hosting our podcast. Hopefully, from here on out, we will inform you if there are any other changes with regards to that. But um, yeah, keep keep tuning in, keep listening. We will still be available on the same mediums, and uh, and you know we would would like you to contribute to the conversation. In some way, send us questions, uh, send us feedback. We will definitely take the time to answer those because, you know, well, what else are we good for? Right? Good exactly. For and we, we'd love to hear from you guys because your contributions to this show make uh, make it worth it. And, like, we love basketball and we always like to talk hoops. So, you know, please send us any questions you have, any concerns you have, and anything you want to hear about. We're happy to, we're happy to talk about it. Awesome. Awesome. So... So, so, so with that, uh, uh, for Bikram, I'm Guru. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Go Nuggets. Yeah, go Nuggets. Uh, we're both rooting for the Nuggets in this next series because uh, I think that they deserve to move on to the next, to the next round at this point.
Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I'm just rooting for them from a, from an emotional standpoint. I think I, they deserve to get absolutely. Hurt. Like, you work your butt off, you deserve. Like, you're gonna get a lot of respect from me, and I've really enjoyed watching them. So, uh, I'm all for the Nuggets at this point. And I, I really like. I think to to take this episode full circle, I really dislike how the Clippers have played in this series. And with that, we will close out this podcast. For Vikram, I'm Guru. We'll talk to you guys soon.